scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our numbers and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Doing all right? Okay. I don't know about the first crowd that was in here. They're pretty snoozy. Don't tell them I told you that. But uh, I'm glad you made it in. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the text that Sharon just read for us, New Testament, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and as many of you may know, but just in case you don't, we're in a series right now called Going Viral. And uh, it's, a, it's a study of this uh, first century document that basically records how uh, the early Christian church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. You know, how did all that, how did all that begin? Um, what exactly happened? Who was involved? Uh, well, thanks to a first century Greek physician named Luke, we have at least some of the story. And if you recall, Luke, our author, uh, begins his book by reporting how after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to uh, his followers over a period of 40 days, at the end of which he instructs them to not leave Jerusalem but to, to stay there and to wait for uh, the gift that God had promised them, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said the Spirit would, would come, would, would empower them to be his witnesses, both, both locally, regionally, and globally. Uh, and as we saw last Sunday, as Jesus and the disciples stood on the Mount of Olives discussing all this, right in front of everybody, Jesus miraculously ascends into the clouds and out of sight. Two angels appear to assure the disciples that someday he would return in the same manner. In the meantime, uh, they were left to carry on this, this mission of bringing the good news of Jesus to their world. And so Luke says at that point, with Jesus gone, the apostles returned to Jerusalem as instructed. Now, in all honesty, uh, in a study like this, 
the, the temptation here is to jump right over to, to chapter 2. Because anyone who knows history, anyone who knows this book knows that that's where all the action begins, right? Spoiler alert here. Jesus' promise gets fulfilled with a sound like a, a, violent, a violent wind and what appeared to be tongues of fire uh, descending uh, on, uh, on, on his followers and resting on them, men and women alike. The Holy Spirit comes with power and everybody, everybody busts out of the upper room and into the streets of Jerusalem and the Christian church um, explodes onto the historic scene and the world has never been the same since. All that happens at the beginning of chapter 2. And so if you're like me, uh, you tend to forget there's more to chapter 1, where Luke tells us specifically, uh, you know, what went on with the disciples when they first got back to Jerusalem. But, uh, you know, I got to tell you, comparatively speaking, it's just not that exciting. You know, it's a funny morning to teach on this text when everyone's a little tired. It's just, it's not that exciting. There's no... You know, there's, there's no ascending into the clouds, and no, there's no angels, there's no violent wind, there's no fire, there's no miracles, there's nothing like that. And so um, I get why a lot of people tend to skip this section, uh, because for some it's, it's just a notch above watching paint dry or you know, reading a genealogy, it's just, just not that fun. But, but here's the deal, despite the lack of excitement, what happens to the disciples uh, from the moment of Jesus' departure to the Spirit's arrival is a relevant and important part of the early church's story. Why? Well, because it represents a period of in-between. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that in life, in-between times are seldom comfortable places to be. Um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we all face them, right? I mean, we all face those times when we're in-between something, in-between jobs, in-between houses, in-between court appearances, in between medical appointments, in between treatments, in between schools, in between relationships. And um, being in between is when we often experience anxiety, you know, insecurity, grief, impatience, frustration, doubt, and fear, things that we would all like to avoid. And yet no one's exempt from these in-between experiences. And that was certainly true of Jesus' closest uh, friends who suddenly you know, find themselves in this unsettling place with only each other for comfort. You know, after three years with him, now Jesus, their teacher and mentor, would be absent from their meetings and their gatherings. They'd have to unlearn the automatic way that they would turn to him for answers whenever there was a question. They could no longer grab hold, hold of his arm for reassurance when they were, when they were anxious. Um, and although they were all witnesses to his resurrection, seeing him disappear... Uh, from view into, into heaven must have felt like a physical loss. And so like it or not, the disciples unexpectedly find themselves living the in-between. You know, not, not without hope. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is promised, but no, no one knew when he would arrive. No one had any idea when that event would take place. And so as a result, they, they all had to wait. So here's my question. How did Jesus' followers handle the in-between? You know, what did they do while they waited and notice, Luke says, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Most scholars speculate that this, this was the same upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus and his disciples celebrated Passover together just prior to his arrest and crucifixion and uh, the place where he first appeared to them after the resurrection and as well as the place he told Thomas to stop doubting and believe. You know, it was no doubt a familiar and safe location for them. 
Uh, and so they return there, but, and with the exception of Judas Iscariot, all 11 of Jesus' apostles were there. We're told those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, uh, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James, also known as Thaddeus. And uh, Luke says they weren't alone. He says they all, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And um, uh, the women who uh, Luke uh, alludes to here no doubt included uh, the sisters Mary and Martha, who Jesus knew quite well, uh, Mary Magdalene, and perhaps some others, uh, some other close female friends of Jesus. Uh, it's it's likely that some of the disciples had uh, were married, and so their wives may have been present as well, along with Mary, Jesus's mother, and his four brothers, who we often forget about: James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Who, by the way, if you recall, were somewhat skeptical of Jesus, but uh, after his death, and most certainly now after the resurrection, are firm believers. And so all these men and women, friends and family, they meet up in Jerusalem and they begin living the in-between. And what's the first thing they do? Well, obviously they weren't running out into the, the streets of the community telling people about Jesus right away. Some suggest that's because they were afraid, uh, and that may have been part of it. I mean, they realized that those in authority who were responsible for killing Jesus would have no hesitation attacking and killing them as well. But I think it was a lot more than just fear. I mean, when it came to this period of in-between, the first thing that the disciples do is they obey Jesus' instruction, right? He told them, he said, do not leave Jerusalem, but just wait. Wait for the gift my Father has promised. And you know, um, look, these people were not perfect people, not perfect men and women by any stretch of the imagination. They were just average, broken, flawed human beings like you and me. The difference, however, seems to be that they were all at a place in life where they knew that when Jesus told them to do something, he had their best interests in mind. I mean, let's face it, so often for us, we can look at Jesus' teaching and we can, we can uh, read some of the things that God says in Scripture that we should do, things that we shouldn't do, and, and, and it's really easy for us to think, hey, man, you know, God just wants to dictate our lives. He just wants to control everything. He wants to make things harder for us and most certainly uh, less enjoyable. And so we cop this, this, this arrogant attitude whereby we, we convince ourselves that we know a lot better than God himself and, and we're going to just do what, whatever we want to do. Scripture calls that sin. I have a few other words for it. Foolish, stupid, dangerous, and destructive. At least that's how I would describe my past arrogant sinful thinking and decision-making. And, uh, you know, like all of you, I, I still struggle with rebellion every single day, every single day. But the older I get, the more I realize that as our creator, you know, God simply knows best what is right and what is good and what is true and what is healthy and what is safe for us in life. Although sometimes it's really hard, it, it only makes sense to obey him. And I'm thinking that by way of their own rebellious experiences, these first followers of Jesus had figured that out. And so they do exactly what he told them to do. They go to Jerusalem and they wait. But during this in-between time, uh, you notice they also prayed. Luke says they all joined together constantly in prayer, which makes sense. Because if you think about it, here they are. Uh, and at this point in their experience, everything, everything had been taken from them, just stripped away, right? Their security, their, their, their peace, um, 
their teacher, their Lord, and their close connection to him. Uh, And yet, they all seem to know that God promised never to abandon or forsake them. And therefore, ultimately, he was their only hope in good times and bad. And so, in a way, they recognize you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. And so almost by instinct, Luke says they, they constantly prayed together. Not, not, you know, not in the, constantly not in the sense that they didn't do anything else like eat, drink, sleep, or work, but in the sense that they were intentionally persistent in praying. So I was thinking about that this week, and I was, I was wondering to myself, what exactly did they pray for? What were they praying for? Because here's the deal. The coming of the Holy Spirit did not depend on his followers praying. I mean, Jesus didn't say, go to Jerusalem, and if you pray hard enough, long enough, and sincere enough, the Spirit will show up. No, that, that was a given. Jesus said, just go and wait for the Spirit to come. So what were they praying for? I'm, I'm guessing that they prayed for that to happen. would make sense. Uh, and no doubt they prayed for patience and for wisdom and protection while they waited. They probably prayed for each other's family, uh, families, for health, for finances, for relationships, for the future, probably all the same kind of things that, that we pray for. And clearly, they didn't, they didn't give up, man. They just, they just kept praying. But they also reflected on Scripture. You know, in verse 15, Luke writes, in those days. In other words, in those in-between days of waiting. And just so you know, we have a pretty good idea how long that was because according to the Jewish calendar, there are 50 days between Passover, that's when Jesus was crucified, and what's called the day of Pentecost, or the day of 50. It's a festival day. And that's the day the Spirit arrives in chapter 2. So given that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days, we know that that we're talking about here 7 to 10 days of waiting. Uh, But the point is, during the time, uh, Jesus' followers studied and reflected um, on the Old Testament Scripture. Apparently, Peter takes the lead here. Uh, Peter stood up, uh, Luke says, among the group of 120 believers, and he says, uh, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was uh, one of our number and shared in our ministry. At which point, if you notice in the text, for the sake of his reader, Theophilus, Luke uh, offers a parenthetical explanation uh, on Judas Iscariot. Um, it's like he was saying, um, you know, Theophilus, uh, you remember Judas the betrayer, you know, the guy who sold Jesus out for money um, and then led authorities to find him. I didn't mention this last time, but uh, eventually he killed himself. It was sad, it was gruesome, uh, but, but he did. And then with that, Luke just picks right back up with Peter talking about the loss of Judas and uh, quoting from the Old Testament. Peter says it's, it, it's written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. This statement comes from uh, Psalm 69, verse 25, and it's not actually a direct, direct quote. It's a paraphrase of the text, which, you know, I appreciate Peter doing, you know, uh, because you guys know how I often give you the Ray K translation, right? Well, this is the, the AP translation, the, the Apostle Peter version. You know, it's his paraphrase of Psalm 69, 25. But then he gives a direct quote from Psalm 109.8. He says, and may another take his place of leadership. So what was Peter getting at here? Well, there are several Psalms in the Old Testament that speak of a time when God's true king would be opposed by a traitor, you know, someone considered a close friend and colleague. In fact, Jesus, when he was sharing the Passover meal with the disciples prior to his arrest, 
predicted Judas's betrayal. Remember? How did he do that? By also quoting from the Psalms. He quoted, Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9. He said, this is going to happen to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And so it seems that Peter is following Jesus' lead on this and saying the Psalms make it clear that, that, that Jesus would be betrayed, and that's happened now. And so it's only right for someone else to take the betrayer's place of leadership. In short, as a result of reflecting on the Scriptures, uh, they, they used reason to apply it to their situation and come to a logical conclusion. And uh, the conclusion was they needed to add a 12th apostle to the group. Primarily because... You know, the, the 12 apostles represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And their first, their first group, group of listeners, uh, when they go out to teach the gospel, share the gospel, is going to be mostly Jewish people. And so having 12 representing the 12 tribes just made sense. And everyone agreed to that. So Peter says, okay, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who, who have been uh, with us the whole time that Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, what does Peter's comment tell us? It tells us uh, uh, that from the start of his public ministry, Jesus traveled not only with the original 12 apostles, but with some other individuals who believed in him as well. We don't know how many they were, but at the very least there were two, right? Because they nominate two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, or the son of the Sabbath, also known as Justice, which was probably, a, you know, a, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a Gentile, it was a Roman name that someone probably gave to him, and then Matthias. And Peter's quite explicit here. The qualifications were simple. Uh, the person had to be a firsthand eyewitness of Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his burial, and the resurrection. And the ascension, for that matter, all of it. They had to be witnesses of all of it. Why? Because Peter and the, and, the, and the guys understood that the good news that they were about to bring to the world was and had to be uh, based on verifiable facts. See, the gospel is not a human invention built on some isolated, subjective, unverifiable experience. It's not. That's what sets it apart from other religions. Because there are plenty of religious groups out there who claim to have truth but lack credible and historical evidence for the origin of that truth. Take Islam, for example. Its founder, Muhammad, claimed that, while teaching the, that, claimed that the teaching of Islam, the Quran, was given to him by an angel while he was inside of a cave all alone. Now, there were no eyewitnesses, just the testimony of Muhammad. So you have one, one man, one angel, one isolated experience, and a new religion is born, a religion of works. Um, think of Mormonism, founded by Joseph Smith. He claimed that the teaching of Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, was given to him by an angel while he was alone in the woods near Palmyra, New York. There were no eyewitnesses, just Smith's story. So again, one man one angel, one isolated experience, and a new religion is born, a religion of works. A religion, by the way, which keeps changing. Over the years, there have been more than 3,900 changes made to the original Book of Mormon. And what's interesting is there's not one shred of archaeological evidence that supports some of its outrageous claims, which is why the Smithsonian Institute rejects it as any kind of reliable reference source. Mormonism is not founded on objective truth. It's based on subjective, isolated human experience. Now, here's my point. It's not to embarrass these religions. 
That's not, that's not the goal. I'm simply trying to show you how biblical Christianity is, is completely unique. It's not founded on subjective, isolated human experience. It's based on hard facts with divine revelation coming from Jesus himself, whose birth, life, teaching, miracles, death, resurrection changed the course of human history. His, think about it. His good news of grace was given not to one isolated person in a cave or in the woods, but was proclaimed out in the open, out in the open to everyone, to those who liked him and those who didn't like him. The same message was given to men and women, the poor and the rich, educated, uneducated, religious and irreligious. You know, Paul, Peter, Matthew, Martha, James, John, everyone saw and heard the same thing. An entire culture heard Jesus' teaching and witnessed his miracles. An entire city saw him unjustly tortured and crucified. An entire dispatch of Roman soldiers saw him entombed. Some 500 men and women witnessed him alive after the resurrection. 120 watched him ascend to heaven. See, here's the reality. No other religion is based on such historically credible events. Witnessed and verified by more than just one individual. In other words, there is a serious and undeniable historical objectivity to Christianity and its propositional truth claims that you have to deal with. And see, Peter and the others with, with him understood that. They understood the importance of that. So they nominate two eyewitnesses, two, two guys who, who saw it all from start to finish. And once they do, we're told, they prayed and they said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us, show us which of these two men you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry that Judas left. And then they do something which for us is a bit unexpected and, and you know, frankly, a little weird. You know, they cast, we're told that they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. You know, you know, what is casting lots? Well, um, Basically, here's my Reiki summary. It's, it was the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of flipping a coin. It's basically what it was. You know, they, the names were written on flat stones. Sometimes they were written on sticks. But the names were written oftentimes on flat stones. They were tossed in the air. And the name that came up decided the issue. And although for us, you know, today, that, that, that seems like an awfully random way to make a decision. You know, just leaving it up to chance. That's the way we see it. But the opposite was true in ancient Israel. This practice was, um, was based on and driven by people's firm belief that God was sovereignly in control of the process. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So think of, think of it in that sense. If you do, then you realize in many respects the casting of lots was an expression of humility before God and evidence that, that the apostles trusted him for the outcome. They trusted that he was in control, and they humbled themselves uh, before him. I mean, look, they did everything that they could do to make a good decision, and a wise decision. They, they prayed, they looked at scripture, they used reason, they set criteria, they, they identified the options, they evaluated the options, and with everything looking equal and qualifications and appeal, then they just they decided to pray again, humbly. And they said, Lord, you know. You know everyone's heart here. Show us which of these two you've chosen. They cast the lot, and it fell to Matthias. Interestingly enough, a few days later, after the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and all the other believers, there's no record of Christians ever flipping stones again to make a decision like that. And so looking back at that event, 
Some people wonder if the apostles got it right. You know, was, was that a right thing to do? Was that the best choice? Uh, critics point out that Matthias is never mentioned again in the New Testament. Uh, all we know about him comes from um, some early church records that indicate he eventually brought the news of Jesus to Colchis, which today is uh, the Republic of Georgia on the east uh, side of the Black Sea. And there around 80 AD, Matthias was martyred for his faith in Christ. And in fact, if you go to that area of the world today, you can visit the ruins of an ancient Roman fortress known as Genoa Fortress on the coast there of the Black Sea, where it is believed Matthias died or was martyred. And this stone is there, the stone marker rests there with his name engraved on it. You can go and see it. So again, when deciding who to add to the group, did the apostles get it right? You know, sometimes we love to talk about those kind of things, you know, and we, we always have more Monday morning quarterbacks, right? So some people say no, some people say yes. For what it's worth, in my opinion, I think they did. I think they got it right because they went about making the decision the best way they knew how at the time and with, humil- with humility and ultimately putting their trust in God for the outcome. They went forward and made the choice in that fashion. So I think they got it right. Now, at this point, a few of us are thinking, okay, man, this is all well and good and kind of interesting, but uh, let's, let's get on to chapter 2 because that's where, that's where things get interesting. That's where the action begins. And again, I get that because clearly this isn't the most exhilarating section of the book. You know, it just isn't. But I'll tell you what, it is remarkably practical because I don't know about you, but I mean, my life isn't exhilarating every moment of every day. It may come as a surprise to you, but it's not. I'm, not. I'm not seeing ascensions and angels and tongues of fire. I mean, my spiritual life isn't all that sensational. But I know this. More often than I like, I find myself living the in-between. You know, a time and a place where God has me waiting for something. A place that tends to draw out my anxiety and my insecurity and doubt and a little fear thrown into the mix. And some of you may know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be experiencing those kind of things right now, anxiety, insecurity, fear, doubt, because you're living the in-between, in-between something or another. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And if you are, here's my advice. Based on the example of Peter, John, Matthew, Mary, and all the rest of Jesus' followers, while for whatever purpose God has you waiting, do this. Commit to obey him, recognizing that he as your creator knows what is right and good and healthy and safe and best for you. So commit to obey him and pray, acknowledging that ultimately he's your only hope. Reflect on the scriptures where we get the truth. Use reason, that's why you have a brain. And then with humility, With all things considered, just trust God. Just trust him for the outcome. And I believe he will bring you and me, he'll bring all of us through those in-between times and show us what is right and good. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning I, re- I realize there's a, uh, there's a, there are a lot of us here in the room and we've all come from different experiences this week. We're all at different places in life, different careers, different uh, experiences, um, all, and I, I realize there may be some f- folks here who are, are living 
that in between. Um, they, they find themselves in that, that place of anxiety and fear and worry and frustration because they're just waiting for something. They're between events or expectations or whatever. We, we all know what it's like. And really, we're all living the in-between every single day. That, that time between birth and death in which itself can draw out a lot of anxiety and fear. And so I, I pray for all of us this morning that, uh, that, we would, that we would be like Peter and the rest who, although they're imperfect people just like us, they knew enough, they knew enough to obey you recognizing that you have created us. So with wisdom, might we do that? And while we wait, Lord, may we, may we pray for whatever comes to our minds, whatever's on our heart. May we come to you acknowledging that you are our only hope, good times or bad. May we, may we go to your scriptures where you've revealed to us truth about life, about you. Um, reason to apply the truth to our situation, our circumstances. And then at the end of the day, I pray that we would just trust you, recognizing that, that you love us, and that you are gracious and good, and that you have demonstrated this love in the most fullest of ways in Jesus. And so because of him, because of what he has done for us, we can trust you. And so we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together, shall we? Hey, I want to thank you all for being with us this morning. And, um, you know, the, the reality is we're all, we really are living the in-between, between birth and death, right? I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's just the reality. At some point along that journey, we have to decide what it is we God, about life, about death, about love, about who we are as human beings. We have to make those decisions. And when it comes to God, you know, and I, when I talk about other religions, it's not, it's not, it's not about criticizing them per se. It's about trying to help us understand the differences that they represent. Because all other religions say you have to work to earn your way to heaven. Whether it's whether it's Hinduism or, or, or Islam or a Buddhism, it's all about you becoming a better person, whether that's through getting more information and enlightenment, or whether it's just, you know, being a good enough, compassionate, love, generous person. It's all about the same thing. We all agree there's a problem with humanity. The difference is the solution. Religion says it's about you solving the problem and making your way. Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's about, it's about Jesus and the grace of God. You can't be good enough. We can't solve the problems. We can't solve our own problem. We need God's grace that's the difference. Embracing him, believing that, that's what makes you a Christian. And, uh, and I, hope, I hope you understand that. We all have to make a decision what it is we believe. And I hope you believe in Jesus. Uh, following the service, maybe there's some things you want to talk about, pray about, or maybe you have questions about that. Or some of our prayer team folks will be down front. You can come and talk with them. They'll be glad to share with you, okay? Uh, come back next week because, okay, I'm going to admit, chapter 2 gets a little bit more exciting than the end of chapter 1. It's just the way it is, right? But uh, come back next week. It's, a, it's one of the most famous passages in the book. We're going to take a look at it, see what it means, how it applies to us. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, in the meantime, 
get a nap. Uh, get a nap today so you're ready for tomorrow. All right, let me pray for you and then we're dismissed. Now, Lord, I pray for your, your people, the church, as we leave the building, as we go back to our lives. Um, as we live the in-between, life itself, between birth and death, I pray that we would live our lives for Jesus. That we would trust you no matter what. And uh, our lives would point people to you, the God who loves them. And who offers grace to all comers. And so may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.